in the Proverbs that that's a crown of splendor, so I'm not, I'm not uh, ashamed at all of it. Uh, we've been moving along in our goals. Like I've been telling you, in November, uh, the elders went away and we fasted and prayed. And two goals resonated with us. The first was family ministry, to strengthen and develop our family ministry at OBC. Now, we have spent two weeks examining that goal together, uh, but we're going to spend a year living out that goal together. We also cited that as a value for us. We wish to be known as a family church because we see the theology in the scriptures that the church is not like a family, but the church is a family. The second is generosity, to promote and develop our great culture a great culture of generosity at OBC. Now, before we get into this goal of generosity, can I ask you a question? Do you want your pastor to be encouraged? Do you? Good, I hope so. And, And you know how you can encourage me? You can tell me stories about what God is doing in your life, what you're seeing. Uh, I think when we get in ministry, sometimes uh, when we are in ministry, a lot of our conversations revolve around difficulties, Uh, but my heart, and I know the people that serve in the church's heart, is we want to also see the fingerprints of God in the ministry and what he's doing. So if you would just do me the favor all year long, Shoot stories along. Pastor Rob, I was praying for this. I saw God work in this way, in this situation. Or this was the first time I was able to share my faith with this person that I've been praying for. Uh, Big or small, rob at ostervillebaptist.org. Send those emails to me. If it's a complaint, send them to Erica, okay? (laughs) All right. As we get into generosity, I believe that actively pursuing generosity is an adventure. Let me say that again. I believe that actively pursuing generosity is an adventure. Now, what is an adventure? Well, I can't tell you exactly what your adventure would look like if you were generous, but I can tell you some of the elements that are involved in an adventure. When you look at an adventure, by definition, an adventure involves stepping into the unknown, and that means that there is an element of hazard and excitement involved. So I can't can't even guarantee you the outcome of an adventure. But one thing that I can guarantee if you step out into an adventure, that you will never be the same again. And most often, the change that an adventure produces in you is for the good. Now, maybe you've heard this before, that the first step of a journey or adventure is the hardest step. The first step is the hardest step. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit portrays just this type of dynamic in the life of Hobbit Bilbo Baggins. I I love this story. I love how he portrays the hobbits and their mindset in this story. And, And listen as Tolkien describes what Bilbo had to overcome in order to leave his village 
and then travel with a wizard and a pack of dwarves across Middle-earth to the Lonely Mountain. He says, this hobbit was a very well-to-do hobbit, and his name was Baggins. The Bagginses had lived in the neighborhood of the hill for time out of mind, and people considered them very respectable, not only because most of them were rich, but also because they had never had any adventures or did anything unexpected. You could tell what a Baggins would say on any question without the bother of asking him. Well, this is a story of how a Baggins had an adventure and found himself doing and saying things altogether unexpected. He may have lost the neighbor's respect, but he gained. Now, if you know the story, you know that Baggins' decision to step outside of the Hobbit mold was a big decision, a painful decision for him but also a life-changing decision. And as he went through that journey looking back, he would have made the decision all over again. Now I have to ask us a big question when we think about our first step when it comes to generosity. This, this question was ruminating in my mind, and, and the question is, what is holding us back when it comes to generosity? Now, you, you might say, what do you mean what's holding me back? And I'm just, I'm just going to come out and say it. I think most of us, if not all of us, are held back when it comes to generosity. How? Well, it's a matter of simple math. You, you look up at the general, gen, um, general statistics of giving in our culture. Professing Christians give only 2.5% of their $2.5 trillion income, and that is split between their giving to church and charitable giving. Now, you'd think, well, okay, well, maybe that would be a lot different for a non-Christian. It's not. They give between 1% and 2% of their income. Uh, what if it's something to do with our disposable wealth? What if we just don't have enough? Well, another th thing you see is that our disposable wealth has increased sixfold since the time of the Depression. And you know what? People gave more before the Depression. Well, this decline in giving we also see is particularly seen in middle-class families. In fact, uh, one author, James Petty, says this, they give at the lowest percentage of any group and yet comprise most of the membership of congregations. Now, I just want you to know this, okay? Sometimes when someone gets up and they start talking about money and giving in the church, we sit there and think to ourselves, okay, here it comes. This is going to be that once a year get your act together chat. And, uh, you know, there'll be a little bump in my giving and I'll, I'll feel compelled to do that and then I'll just kind of move on. Or other people think, and, and maybe this is due to some of the experiences that you have, that the church is only interested in your money. I have to tell you, neither of those things are true for me. Frankly, if you don't give, it's no skin off of my back, you know? It just it doesn't make a difference to me. The real thing is, is that I want something for you. I want something for you. I believe that generosity is an adventure, and I believe that it is going to change your life. So before we get into the, well, how will it change my life, I want to get back to, again, 
what's holding us back. And so here's what I think is holding us back. I think that we think like hobbits. We think a lot like hobbits think. Now let me identify a big myth we believe that explains it. And the big myth is this. I picked myself up by my bootstraps. I mean, that is the American phrase, if there was ever an American phrase. Listen to this hobbit-like prayer from one of our older movies. It wouldn't be here, we wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We work dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel, but we thank you just the same anyway, Lord, for this food we're about to eat. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Now that's about as grateful as it gets, isn't it? And I don't I don't imagine anyone here has prayed that prayer before. At least I hope you haven't prayed that prayer before. But the underlying mindset is pervasive in our culture. Like hobbits, we think, I don't really need to involve myself in other people's problems. I've built a comfortable existence. And, and if they want the, the same comfort that I have, well, they're just going to have to work as hard as I did because I'm not budging out of my hobbit hole. Like good hobbits, we'll be warm, we'll be hospitable, but we're not going to take any serious risks to ourselves when it comes to generosity. In their book, Passing the Plate, Christian Smith and Michael Emerson introduced the phrase discretionary giving as a way to understand the, the typical mindset of an American who approaches giving. Basically, Christians believe that they should give and be generous to gospel ministry, but at the same time, that giving should be according to their discretion. Essentially, I give what I can, when I can, and I never feel burdened by compulsion to give above and beyond that. And I mean, why not? Again, I earned my money. I've worked exceptionally hard. If others want what I have, well, they can go out and they can work too. And that is exactly the type of mindset that Ward Brehm had when he was a younger man. Now, Brehm, if you know anything about him, he's quite an amazing guy. He today is a full-time philanthropist in the country of Africa. He, at great cost to himself, left a successful business career and went into this pathway. But it's been an amazing pathway for him. He served with two American presidents, Bush and Obama. He received from President Bush the Presidential Citizens Medal. But when you look back at his story, he wasn't always generous with his mindset. As a younger man, Bren needed a splash of cold water so that he wouldn't believe his own press. His good friend Monty took him out to lunch and really began to butter him up, so much so that Brem is thinking as this is happening, you know, what is this guy's angle right now? Monty is hitting all the highlights. He's talking about all of the successes. I can't believe how good your decisions are. You started that insurance business, and, and that was just so spot on at that time. And then you moved on, and you founded a, an employee benefits insurance company, and on and on he goes, the praising and the lauding higher and higher as the conversation moves forward. He says, you always made the right moves. 
every step of the way, your decisions were brilliant. Long pause. What I can't figure out is how you pulled off the most brilliant move of them all. The one that made all of the other maneuvers possible. Again, long pause. So tell me, Ward, how in the world were you able to orchestrate being born into the affluent suburb of Adena, Minnesota to two perfect parents? Now friends, that right there is the humbling reality check. It was stepping into this generosity journey that led Ward to realize something about himself. He called himself at that time a jerk. And this is his jerk theory. He essentially says when someone lives their life without some deeply humbling experience, something that drives them to their knees, whether it's the loss of a beloved person, a divorce, a great failure, or a deep illness, they become a jerk. Now for him, that deep experience was the loss of his father who he adored and a trip to Africa at the age of 40. Word says this, the more someone achieves without humility and the older they grow without their arrogance being checked, the bigger the jerk they become. And friends, that's what hobbits are. Hobbits are lovable jerks. Good neighbors try to live a decent life, though, (laughs) boy, you cross them and they get a little grumpy. And all wrapped up in themselves. But when it comes to generosity, we have to understand something huge from the Bible. It's not about you. It is not about you. It's just not. It's not about me. It's not about Osterville Baptist Church. I I actually cringe a little bit today with some local churches because it seems like the, the most important thing to them is advertising themselves. It's not even about humanity globally. When you boil it down to the biblical message, what it's all about is God. It's all about Him. And so to be a generous person, I have to understand three big truths from the Bible. Truth number one, God owns everything. Everything. Believing that he owns everything will change the way you think about everything. You will no longer make statements like, my house, my car, my things, my money, my vacation, my resources. Because these types of statements just don't align with the scriptures. Even people who don't believe in God understand, really, ultimately, that their possessions are not theirs. Stephen King, the author, wrote this. He said, I want you to consider making your lives one long gift to others, and why not? Because all you have is on loan anyway. And why is it on loan? Because you're not taking it with you, right? And so someday, 
Someone else will have the things that you worked for, and they're going to be convinced that it is theirs because they worked for it, and both are wrong at the end. So what does the Bible say? Well, Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's. Haggai 2.8, God stakes his claim, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, even your ability to work, uh, your intellect, your skills with your hands. Deuteronomy 8.18 says, it is he who gave you your power to get wealth, even your own person. 1 Corinthians 6.19, you are not your own. Well, if God owns everything, well, then we have to believe this second truth. What we have has been given to us by God. I want you to understand how freeing that theology is. I mean, do you know how many wrong things we believe about money and possessions? We believe that money can make me safe. We believe that money can make us happy. We believe that it can make us feel fulfilled. And I've got to tell you, friends, That is an exhausting belief system. Absolutely exhausting. Uh, Some of you are working yourselves to the bone because you believe that. Others of you are missing out on that great opportunity to have that time with your children because you believe that. Others of you have a strained marriage because you believe that. And it's absurd. It's absurd to believe that money can do things it can't do. It's like believing that a boat can take me to the moon. It just makes no sense. But think about now how freeing it is to know that God owns everything and he is responsible for giving me everything that I need. Now that's the kind of theology that will keep you faithful when you are fearful and grateful when you are gainful. Knowing that God provides is exactly why Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious for your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. But Jesus, if I don't worry about those things, who's going to worry about those things? And Jesus says, your heavenly Father will. That's the theology. And who do you want to worry about your future, your security, your provisions? You? You who can't control what's going to happen 10 seconds from now? Or God, who in eternity past planned and set things into motion that are going to perfectly happen according to his will? But here's the deal. It takes faith to believe that and faith to act upon it. So the third thing is this. If number one and number two are true, then we can be generous. Because number one and number two are true, you can be generous. And this is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. I mean, did you ever consider that that verse also involves your money and your possessions? Seek first God's kingdom and how you give 
and all those things will be added to you. What things? Well, the things that we want, the things that we think that money can buy for us, like security, like happiness, like fulfillment. So now we have to ask the question, okay, well then, what is generosity? Or maybe a a better way to ask the question is, how do I know when I'm being generous? I mean, am I generous because I occasionally give to a cause that I feel passionate about? Am I a generous person because, you know, at the grocery store checkout, the cashier said, would you like to add a dollar to cancer research today? And I said, absolutely, put that dollar on my bill, which, just a little aside for a moment, if if nonprofits have to raise money through something so innocuous as a dollar on our bill, what does that say about our generosity as a culture? Or, or here, here's, what, here's the, the gold standard. I'm generous if I tithe. That's it, right? If I tithe to the church, I'm a generous person. I don't think so. In fact, I suspect, as I read the Bible, that tithing is like getting a C plus on the gener- generosity final exam. So to define generosity, we have to examine what the Bible shows us about generosity. And the best place to look is the gospel. What does the gospel tell us about generosity? I mean, think about it. Jesus is God the Son. He left the splendors of heaven He left the prestige of heaven, the glory of heaven. He humbly chose to be born in a manger with all the capacities of a baby, to grow up and walk in rural Galilee with low-class types, cast-outs, even known defectors. He bravely marched to Jerusalem knowing he's going to face the cross. He lays down his life so that he might save sinners. Friends, it's all wrapped up in this, which means if you want to be generous, you have to first believe that Jesus died in your place for your sins. If you put your faith in him, the Bible says, God will radically transform your heart. He will change the trajectory of your life. So I encourage you, start there. Examine the gospel, trust him. But as we look at the gospel... This is why Scripture refuses to make generosity a checklist or to reduce it down to some type of percentage in the amount I give because generosity is not a percentage, it's a heart disposition. It's an attitude. Our hearts, I've got to tell you, we're not born to be generous. Each one of us has a little jerk hobbit living in our heart. And it is... His job to whisper in your ear, just do enough so others will nod with approval and make sure that you post it on Facebook so everyone sees, but don't go too far because you don't owe anyone anything. But when we trust Jesus, it's the Holy Spirit's job to do the impossible work of shrinking that hobbit's voice and enlarging the voice of Jesus. So what is generosity? Well, I like this definition. Generosity is at its core a lifestyle. A lifestyle in which we share all that we have, are, and ever will become as a demonstration of God's love 
and a response of God's grace. So now I can't even reduce generosity down to my giving, but it's the choices that I'm making through the day, the, the way that I'm allocating my time, the way I'm serving people, it all flows out of the same heart disposition. And we learn of this heart disposition through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. And it's not even enough to commit to this and say, oh, I'm going to be a generous person. Generosity is only proven when I act upon generous impulses. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 8, prove, prove your love is genuine. Jesus didn't just think about saving people. (laughs) He didn't say to the Father, yeah, at some point I commit to doing that. He came and he laid down his life for people. Okay, you think, is this worth it? Is this really worth it, this this definition that you're talking about? And, And can I even do this? Can I really live a lifestyle where I'm sharing all I have and all I am and ever will become? Well, friend, the answer to that question is this is a journey, okay? We we don't all start off marathon generosity athletes. We we grow into this heart disposition and into this. In fact, as you think about what does God want from me, God doesn't want you to be just like the generous person sitting next to you. He wants you to be the generous person he's designed you to be. And how do I do that? Well, I do it by responding to him the next time he tells me to be generous. So it's a journey. And if you're at the first part of the journey, you're going to see that generosity is risky. It's risky. There is inherent risk in generosity because generosity requires faith. And you will never do something that is faith-based that doesn't involve some kind of risk. That's why Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He said the same to a disciple who was looking to follow him and said, Look, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Friends, that's risky. That's risky. There are no promises of immediate spa moments and luxuries and vacations of a lifetime. Now, many of us have the benefit and the joy of those things. But Jesus never said, come after me and I will pamper you. So generosity requires courage and faith. And sometimes God's going to ask you to do things you don't think you can do. I know that I'm starting to get the generosity attitude when I'm sitting down to write a check and I'm not writing the check that I know is just going to be a little bit painful to me, like I can't go out and get some Chinese food or something like that. I know that it's God speaking when he's saying, write the check that you need to trust me for. Or, or a decision about lifestyle, right? Right? Some of us have the financial capacity 
where we need to start asking the question, where is my lifestyle limit? I'm not going to keep going up and up and up in terms of my standard of living. Others of us, maybe we've blown past that and we're now asking the question, maybe I need to reduce my standard of living so that I am liquid. I can be generous as God calls me to be generous. I'm not going to embarrass or looking to embarrass two of my friends, but I'm going to because that's what I do. And uh, they're probably going to beat me up when they hear about this. I don't see them here right now. But I want to identify two generous risk takers to you, Armand and Madeline Palladino. Now, Armand and Madeline left a career path where they were doing quite well. They felt called to be missionaries, Armand in particular with men in the Mirror Ministries. They had a serious heart to see men come back to church because if, if you're not watching, if you're not looking, men are really struggling spiritually. It's a big problem in our culture. Now, to support their ministry, they raise support and they both work. You see how sacrificial and generous that is? That is so generous. I, I look at that example and I think to myself, how can you be more like that, Rob? Well, can I challenge you guys to do something generous? Could I challenge 10 or 15 of you to prayerfully consider and consult together about supporting them monthly, $100, $200, or if God lays a bigger number on your heart to help them in their ministry? Because I think God can use us to honor the sacrifice that they're making, and I would love to do that as a church. See, this is what it's all about, generous risks. But as you do that, people are going to think you're crazy. <laughs> you know, some people are going to look at the generous risks you take, and they're going to be like those hobbit villagers in Baggins Village. He lost the respect of his neighbors, but they're not going to understand that as we act on generosity, there is gain by losing. See, the second thing I want us to see about this journey is that generosity is life-changing. Now, as you sign up for a Thrive group this semester, we're all studying Randy Alcorn's The Treasure Principle. And I really encourage you to sign up for that and don't just get the Bible study guide. Get the book and read the book. It's not a big book, but it's a great book. He derives his treasure principle from Matthew 13, 44. That's right, just one short verse. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and, and he buys a field. I, I just love envisioning this parable. You're, you're watching uh, this play out and this man goes home and he starts clearing out his things. He's selling everything that he has and his neighbors are looking over at him and thinking, what in the world is wrong with Tom? I mean, Tom used to be a pretty respectable guy. I used to look at Tom and think he's one of us, but I think he's lost a couple of screws. But Tom... Tom knows something they don't know. Now, people who have let go of the 
I'm not living for me, or I'm living for me only mentality, they know what Tom knows too. They know that there's so much joy and excitement and purpose in following Jesus and that everything else pales in comparison. You know, it's fine to get a nice fishing rod, but that is nothing compared to knowing Jesus. It's great to have a once in a lifetime vacation, but don't live for vacation. Say that I'm living for Jesus. See, all of this joy is wrapped up in the treasure of knowing Jesus, following Jesus. And here's the deal, you get so much more when you give than you had when you were just holding on to it. There's joy in giving. And this is what the Macedonians teach us. You see, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is encouraging the, the Corinthian church to give to relief work to persecuted Christians in Jerusalem. And to inspire this rich church, He cites the example of the Macedonians. They're poor. They've suffered affliction. Yet Paul says of them in 2 Corinthians 8, 2, for in severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity. What do we learn from the Macedonians? Well, first, they teach us that giving is the secret sauce to happiness. It really is. Generosity, giving, is the secret sauce to happiness. And while wealth is a limited commodity, they also teach us that giving is something that everyone can do. Isn't that incredible on God's part? He didn't wire us to find happiness in wealth, something that most of the world doesn't have. He wired every person to find happiness when they give. And if you don't believe me on this, you need to have a conversation with a giver. When you know someone who gives uh, and you hear a little bit about the joy and the fulfillment that they feel, you think to yourself, boy, I want some of that. I've, I've had some conversations with people of capacity and they had all kinds of money. They felt no happiness with all of that. But they started becoming passionate about a kingdom work of God and then they're writing checks that are incredible, something they never thought they would do. They're using their time to valuable causes and you know what? They're not looking back. I've also talked to people who don't make that much at all. In fact, every time the offering plate comes by and they tithe, they feel nervous. But then they start giving what they can. They start serving to uplift others. And you know what they say? They say the same thing. I'm not looking back. Because God doesn't care about who can give more. He cares about the heart attitude of the giver. In fact, As you think about applying this, I would encourage you, let your heart lead in generosity. Okay, there's a lot of things where we need our mind involved, and and certainly, yes, we need our mind involved in this, but let your heart lead. I'm such a cranial guy. My son, Bear, is all heart. I mean, he just oozes heart. He, I've told you before, he, he tells me all the time, I love everyone everywhere, and 
I believe him. I really do. When we were on sabbatical, we were walking and hiking along. He literally goes up to every single person on the road and says, have a nice day, and gives them a big smile. Now, I have to confess to you, Bear recently, he got involved with Pokemon cards. Now, this is their currency, right, as kids. This is what matters to them. And the, the friends are collecting them, they're trading them, and, and Bear gives them to people like hotcakes. And so one day, I finally had enough. I scolded him and had a conversation about, you know, son, this is how the Pokemon economy works, and this is how you can be intelligent with your Pokemon decisions. This is how you could capitalize on your friendships to make more, no, I'm just kidding. I didn't go that far. So I had this conversation, and I read this quote from Randy Alcorn. If you ever feel inclined to talk a young believer, including your child, out of giving, please restrain yourself. Don't quench God's spirit, and don't rob someone of present joy and future rewards. Instead, watch and learn. Then ask God what he wants you to give. I thought to myself, you little hobbit jerk. <laughs> and I went home. I said, Bear, you can redistribute Pokemon wealth to your heart's content moving forward. And now my job is just to watch him and learn as he does it. Friends, just wait and see as this becomes a core value. You see, generosity is not just life-changing, it's courageous. And I would like to see us adopt this as a church, as a core value. The elders would as well. I hope it's something that resonates with us. What does that look like? Well, it looks like creative, prayerful acts of generosity. It looks like even church leadership decisions where we're not just sitting on all of the money that we have, but we're being generous and outwardly focused as a church with what God has given us. It looks like families making generosity decisions together. Now, not in unilaterally sitting down together, praying about it, thinking about it. And, and here's a thought. Why don't we invite our kids into the conversation? Why don't we make family decisions where we say something along the lines of, look, maybe this year we don't need to take that vacation. We can staycation. And, and we can do something generous together. I think your kids will remember that. And I think it will instill the value of generosity into them. It also involves sharing our God stories together of how God led us to be generous. Now, I know what we think. Didn't Jesus say, though, like, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you? Yes, he did. But clearly, Paul saw no problem with sharing the Macedonian story with the Corinthians. So we have to understand that the principle is not that I never tell anyone that I did something, but that I examine my heart and motives as to why I'm doing something. And if generosity is contagious, I gotta tell you, friend, when you tell me about how you've been generous, Katie has to protect our retirement because I just wanna go after it now. And my prayer is that everyone in this church 
will experience the joy of generosity. But what if you feel limited? What if you're saying to yourself, look, I like this idea. In fact, I love it. But I'm dealing with debt. Well, friends, we're going to talk next week about stewardship and why that is the discipline that comes before the disposition. And if you're struggling in that area, even if you're not in like significant debt, but, but you're just, your money just is extended in such a way where you just can't be generous, I encourage you, sign up for Financial Peace University. That is such an important decision in our life as a Christian, to learn the discipline that comes before the disposition. Friends, as we wind down, I'd like to supply you one more reason that generosity is so important. Generosity is eternal. It's eternal. You probably know the story of the rich young ruler. Maybe you don't. But it's basically this guy who has it all together, who comes to Jesus, and he's looking for a response like, yes, you've checked all the boxes, you are making it happen, you're going to get to heaven. And he really is. I mean, he's obeying the Ten Commandments. He's an upstanding guy. He does kind things when he can. But Jesus hits his heart and identifies his addiction. He says to the rich, young ruler, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. That was his kryptonite. He was so strongly tethered to earth that he had no mind for what spends in heaven. What is this heavenly treasure? I don't know exactly. I think it is some kind of reward system, again, that spends in heaven's economy. It could involve riches, but I don't think so. It doesn't seem that God's too interested in that. I think it will be the immense joy we feel when we see people that we played a part in their eternal story. So whatever it is, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Well, can I, can I buy my way into heaven? Well, one Catholic priest raising money for an inner city school was asked this by an extremely wealthy donor. And the priest answered, no, I don't believe that's possible, but let's give it a try anyway. Now, we could just as easily ask, can we lay up this treasure by practicing discretionary giving. Remember, that's the I give when I can, what I can, and I don't really even feel a compulsion to give. Well, how do you think Jesus would answer that question? I think he has. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Randy Alcorn shares a powerful analogy that helps me to understand how I should be thinking when it comes to laying up treasure in heaven. He, he says to you, imagine that you're living in that Civil War era as the war is winding down. 
Now, you're a northerner and you're stranded in the south. You, you plan to move back north once the war is over. But while south, you are con- accumulating Confederate currency. Now, by this point, you can see clearly how the war is going to end. Now, what would you do with that Confederate money? Well, if you're smart, you would immediately cash in your excess Confederate currency for U.S. currency because U.S. currency is the only thing that's going to spend in the new economy. You're only going to keep enough Confederate currency to meet your needs. But beyond that, you're going to be very intentional with how you invest. So in our case, I think what God's word is saying to us Let's trade our earthly currency for heavenly currency. And let's do this by giving freely, liberally, joyfully, thoughtfully. Let's do it by choosing to adopt a value as a church together. Let's be a generous church. Would you bow your heads with me as you think through that? Now I know that As I was reading this, God was laying so many things on my heart in terms of generous generosity. And friends, I want to encourage you this morning that consecration of decisions is so important. The idea of that is that I come to a determined place in my mind that I intend to do something, and I acknowledge that before God. So let me pray with you as we do that. Lord, we want to be a generous church. I know as individual members, we want to be generous in our disposition. As a church, we want to be generous in the way that we give. And so my prayer for each and every one here is they are examining their heart, as they're looking to you, as they're asking the question prayerfully, how can I be more generous? I pray, Lord, that you would give us, by the power of your Holy Spirit, creative ideas, that you would lay people on our heart, missions on our hearts, so that we could be the church that you're calling us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Friends, as we stand together and close, I do have Elder Kyle and Elder Everson over here. Courage, you come forward. I'd come forward every week. You know, I really would. I've got so many things to pray about. Come forward. We'd love to pray for you.